0: Open your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25. Because I do want us to think this morning about the judgment of the nations, and it is a fascinating, fascinating judgment that will one day take place. And in just a few minutes, we'll read about it. We'll see what Jesus said about this judgment. But before we get into that, I want us just to think about the setting of this judgment. When will it happen? Where will it be? Who will be there? What will it be like? So let me try to explain that first. Remember from our study of Revelation, and this is one reason I'm dealing with this today, even though it's not from Revelation, this sermon fits nicely into our study of end times. We have learned that there's coming a day when Jesus Christ will leave heaven and come back to this world. Earth, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that will instigate at the Battle of Armageddon. And then Jesus will travel from northern Israel down south to Jerusalem, and he will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And for a thousand years, we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. It will be a time of unprecedented peace on the earth. There'll be no wars. There'll be no friction. There'll be no strife. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Children will play with snakes. It will be a wonderful time. We will be with Jesus. When he leaves heaven, we will follow Jesus out of heaven and back down to the earth. You say, well, now how are we going to get to heaven? Well, remember when we die, we go to heaven as Christians. And then at the rapture of the church, our bodies will come up out of the graves and our bodies will be reunited with our living souls and we'll have our resurrection bodies. And so before the second coming takes, place. We'll already be in heaven with Jesus. When he comes back, we'll come back with him. We'll follow him to the battle of Armageddon. We'll go to Jerusalem, and we'll be with him on the earth for a thousand years. Now, at the beginning of this thousand-year period, a judgment will take place on the earth known as the judgment of the nations. Now, remember this. When Jesus comes back, the only people living on the earth will be people who have survived the tribulation period. That is people who, when the rapture takes place, will be unsaved. So they didn't go to heaven. They'll still be on earth. And during the next seven years, during the great tribulation, we have spent months in our study of Revelation, studying about the great tribulation. And we know that many people will be killed during the tribulation. We also know that many people will survive and make it all the way to the end of the tribulation. Some of those people will have gotten saved during the seven-year period of tribulation. Many others will have not gotten saved. They will have rejected Jesus Christ. And so when Christ comes back, there will be saved people and unsaved people on the earth, and He, at this judgment, will judge them. Now, what does this mean? It means if you're saved you will not be at this judgment because you won't be on the earth when Christ comes back. You'll be coming back to the earth with Jesus, but you won't already be here. You'll be coming back. So you won't be a part of this judgment. We also know that if you are unsaved, how about people here today? In in the first service, there were three people who got saved. So that means at the first of that service, they were unsaved. And so had they not gotten saved, and stayed unsaved, and then the rapture takes place, and they miss it, and they survive the seven-year period of tribulation, whether they got saved or didn't get saved, they would be at the judgment of the nations. Now, we also know there are many people who are unsaved who will die before this happens, so they won't be at this judgment either, and so You know, what are the odds of somebody in this room or somebody listening at home today, what are the odds that one day you will be at the judgment of the nations? I would say the odds are small. You say, well, John, if the odds are small that we'll be there, why would we even study it? Well, first of all, because it's in the Bible. That's reason enough, right? And second of all, we learn some lessons about God, about us, and about the basis on which God will one day judge all of us, whether we're at this judgment or not, that we can easily apply to our lives. And so the setting of this judgment is that at the second coming of Jesus Christ and before the millennium takes place. And so after this judgment is over, those who are unsaved will be sent away from the presence of God. They will be sent to a place called Hades where they will begin to be punished for their sins. Ultimately, they'll go to hell. Those at this judgment who were saved, they will enter the millennial kingdom with Christ so that I would say it this way, when the millennial reign of Christ begins in earnest, that is after this judgment that takes place at the beginning of the millennium, when the reign of Christ begins in earnest, everybody on the earth at that time will be saved. Now, as we saw in previous sermons, people, the millennium is going to last a thousand years. Generations will be born. Many of those born will not get saved and they will one day be deceived by the devil. We've already dealt with that. But what I want you to see is at the beginning of the millennium, everybody on the earth will be saved. But before the millennial reign begins at this judgment, not everybody will be saved. Jesus will be separating the saved from the unsaved. The language he uses here, the sheep from the goats. The sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And so that is the reason for the judgment, to separate the saved from the unsaved. Now, Matthew chapter 25, I normally would not read in a corporate worship service this many verses at one time. I would normally describe it and maybe read three or four verses. But today, I want to begin in verse 31 of Matthew 25, and I want to read down through verse 46. These are the words of Jesus as he described this judgment of the nations. And let me say now that even though we call it the judgment of the nations, it's not that nations will be judged as a whole. It's not like Jesus is going to say, America this way, Argentina that way, you know, Italy here and some other country there. No, individuals will be judged. And so sometimes in the Bible, we read that word nations, and it's referring to individual people who make up the nations. Verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory, this is the second coming of Jesus and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory all the nations that is all the people that made up all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment. They will not enter the millennial reign of Christ, certainly not heaven, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus has told us here about the judgment of the nations. Now, what are some lessons that we can learn from this judgment? that we can apply to our lives right here and right now. I wanna mention several. Number one, and I think this is where it all begins, there are two categories of people in the world, the saved and the unsaved. Here Jesus described them as the sheep and the goats. We look at people and we make judgments about people and we shouldn't do it, but we do it based on a lot of different determinations Are they kind? Are they unkind? Do they have money? Do they have no money? Are they educated? Are they uneducated? Are they a Democrat? Are they a Republican? Are they a Texans fan? Are they a Cowboys fan? Good luck to both of those, right? Bad year for both of those teams. But we make these judgments. But when God looks down from heaven and sees all of us who are living on the earth, God's not interested in who's our team. God's not interested in how much money we have or even how much education we have. It's not, God's not impressed with that. God looks down and God says, that one is saved and that one is lost. That one is a sheep and that one is a goat. That one is on his way to heaven and that one is on her way to hell. And so we learn here at the very beginning that there are two categories of people. And in fact, at this judgment, the only thing Jesus will be doing is separating the wheat and the tares as it were to use another one of Jesus' parables he's separating out the sheep from the goats the saved from the unsaved now he lets us all be together we shop together we eat together we we do life together we go to school together we're all together and yet there's coming a day when there will be a great separation between the saved and the unsaved and so i'll say that today to say this you're in one of those categories you're either a sheep or you're a goat. You're either saved or you are unsaved. As one pastor said, you're a saint or you're an ain't. You're one or the other. You can't be in the middle. There are only two categories of people. The second lesson we learn is this. Both groups will be judged based on their actions. Both groups will be judged based on their actions. Those who are saved will be judged. Why? Because they have served God during the tribulation by serving others. They're feeding the hungry. They're giving water to those who are thirsty. They're clothing the naked. They're visiting the sick and those in prison. They're taking strangers in. And so Jesus says this group will be judged on their actions, but this other group will too. They haven't helped anybody. They haven't fed the hunger. They haven't given any water away. They haven't gone and visited anybody in the hospital. They haven't cared about those who are incarcerated. They've ignored the needs, the basic needs of humanity. They have ignored. And so both groups of people will be judged based on their actions. But now think about something. If the sermon stopped here which it's not, by the way. But if it did stop here, we might have the idea that we're saved based on our actions. In other words, if we feed the hungry, If we clothe the naked, if we give money away, if we visit sick people and go and have a prison ministry, then we're going to heaven. And if we fail to do those things, then we're going to hell. You could conclude that, but that would be wrong. It is not that we're saved by our actions. Our actions are the fruit of our salvation, not the root of our salvation. The root of our salvation is our faith in Jesus Christ, a heart that has been born again, a heart that has been changed, a heart that is full of faith in Jesus Christ. And if that root of faith is there, there will be fruit in our lives, which leads to the third lesson that I want to bring out of this judgment. And that is this, our actions reveal our hearts. We're not saved by our actions, but our actions do reveal what is going on in our hearts. I think some people, they they hear the preacher say, you're not saved by your actions, And in their mind, they just say, well, it doesn't even matter what I do. I'll live however I want to live. Well, no. If you've been saved, it will show in your actions. Now, turn back to Matthew chapter 7. I want us to see this more clearly. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about our actions. But more importantly, he's talking about our heart, the condition of our heart that motivates our actions. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now look at verse 20. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Say that with me. By their fruits, you will know them. And so it is our actions that reveal the condition of our heart. Someone has said, we're not saved by faith plus works, and that's true. But we are saved by faith that works. And so if our faith is genuine, we will have actions that uh, reflect what is going on in our heart. Again, I want to say this again. Our works, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, all these things, that is the the fruit of salvation. That is not the root of salvation. Now the next lesson, I I want to mention this. It is the condition of our hearts that matters most not just our actions. Our actions matter, but they don't matter as much as our heart because it is our heart that is motivating the action. And one thing we know about God, God is always interested in the heart, not just what you do, but why you do it. Like with me, for example, here I'm standing up here preaching a sermon. I'm standing in front of you, Bible open, talking about God. Now, what could be more spiritual than that? Well, God's not as interested in that as he is my heart why am I doing this? What is motivating me? That will be the basis that I will one day be judged on. Not just what I did, that'll be part of it, but why I did what I did. And the same is true for you. Not just what you do, but what motivates you, what drives you to do that. Matthew chapter 7, look down in verse 21. We saw this passage some time back, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father. Many will say to me in that day, that is the final judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So these people will one day stand before Christ and they will say, Jesus, we had the actions. We were prophesying in your name. People who were demon-possessed, we're casting out demons in your name. Lord, look at what we did. And Jesus say, yes, I saw what you did. But I also saw your heart. And your heart had never been changed by me. You didn't have any faith in your heart. You'd never been born again. That wasn't motivated based on your love for me. You were doing all these religious things thinking that you were going to go to heaven because of what you did, but you neglected the more important matter Of the heart. And so this says to me that God is interested in the condition of our hearts. It is not just our actions. Think about all the good actions you've already done today. You got up when you could have stayed in bed, you came to church when you could have stayed home. You sang songs when you could have watched the news or the sports, the pregame to the ball game. You've come to church. There you sit right now in God's house. You didn't have to be here. You don't ha- Nobody made you come. You're here. You're listening. You're paying attention. You're worshiping God. Some of you have already tithed and given your offerings to God. Look at how many good things you've already done today. And that's wonderful. But here's the question. Why are you doing them? Why are you here? Well, there may be a lot of different answers to that question, but it is the heart. The point I'm wanting to make here is that God is interested with the heart. He's interested in what motivates us to do what we do. And that will be the basis, largely, of our judgment one day when we stand before Christ. It is the motive. You know, I've been thinking about this. All last week as I was preparing this sermon, I'm thinking about motives, Not just doing the right thing, but why we do the right thing. If you will examine your motives, yes, look at your actions to see if you're doing these things, but also look at your motives. Why are you doing what you're doing? You know, one thing that will help you as you try to determine your motives, when you do something, like if you go, I know right now we can't, but if it were normal, and you went to visit someone in the nursing home, or you went to visit someone in the hospital, or you just did all manner of things. Here's the question. When you're going to do that, what are you saying to yourself? What is in your mind? And I I, I, I thought about that. I think sometimes the, the right thing that should be in our mind, if we're going to do something, we should be having the attitude that says, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved me. Thank you, Lord, that you've made it where I can serve. Let's just play like, this is a silly illustration, let's just use this. Let's just play like today, you said, you know, I want to do something, I want to do something nice for John. And so after the service, what I'm going to do, I'm going to just go up to John, and I'm going to give him a $100 bill. And so you're sitting there right now thinking about it. I'm thinking about today, giving John a $100 bill, but I'm not sure if my motives are right. Well, let me say this to you. As the recipient of the $100 bill, I don't care what your motives are. It don't make any difference to me what your motives are. You give me a $100 bill, I just got a $100 bill, right? I got blessed by your action. See, you can go out and feed hungry people and give water to thirsty people and visit people in the hospital and visit people in prison. Your motives may be wrong, but they still got blessed, right? So you bless them, but think about this. You're not going to stand before them in judgment one day. You're going to stand before God. And God's not going to just judge you based on you gave away $100. God's not going to just judge you, you visit somebody in the hospital, nursing home. God's going to judge you based on the motive of your heart. And so if your motive is, God, I just thank you, not to, don't give me $100, but, but let's, say, let's say you have a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, somebody, and they fall on hard times. They've lost their job, they don't have any income right now. By the grace of God, you do still have income, and you have a little extra, and you might could give your neighbor or your friend, you might could give that $100 away this afternoon, and so you just go to their house, and you write them a little note, and you drop it on their porch, and you say, here's $100. I was just thinking about you, and I want to do something special for you and for your, and for your kids today. Well, as you're doing that, what's in your heart? I have to do this. I feel like it's probably, or is it like, God, I just thank you that I can do. You see, if our motive is, thank you, Lord, that tells us our heart is right. Uh, or, or if your motive, Sometimes when I'm getting, trying to do something, I'll say, not just thank you, Lord, but sometimes I'll say, help me, Lord. I know yesterday we had two weddings here at the church, one at four o'clock, one at six. And I was home getting ready to come to those weddings, and before I left the house, I said, God, I just ask you to help me to do a good job at those weddings. I know everybody getting married. I know all their families, and I want it to be good for them, and I know what to say at a wedding, but, God, you may want me to say something extra. You may want me to leave something out. I just want to make it personal and good, and I want them to feel good about their wedding day. But, God, more than anything down there at that church today, I just want to be in the Spirit. I I know it's a wedding. It's not a revival, but I just want to be in the Spirit. I, I want your Spirit to just speak through me today. And so, God, I just ask you to help me, Lord. Help me, Lord, to do a good job today. Came down here at four, and then at six, and I don't know if I did good or bad, but when I got in my car last night to go home, I just thought, thank you, Lord. I just thank you that you helped me today, and I I felt good about it, and it it seemed like it, it went pretty well. What I'm saying is, if when we're trying to serve God by serving others, if we're saying, thank you, Lord, that I can do this, help me, Lord, you know, uh, help me to do, my, to do my best. That's what I woke up this morning. And I, that was what was on my heart. I woke up at 5.52. Now, you know, when you wake up at 5.52, there's only one thing you ought to do. Go back to sleep, right? And I wanted to go back to sleep. And I couldn't because I was excited. I'm always excited. I sometimes don't sleep it on Saturday night. I'm not scared. I'm excited. It's like a, if you're a preacher, this is like, your super, it's like a Super Bowl. And I'm excited. And I laid in the bed. I was thinking about it. And God, today, help me. And I was thinking about my sermon. I was walking through it. I said, God, help me to do good. Help me to be in the Spirit today. Help me to preach truth today. But help me to have a loving heart. Just help me to do it right. Help it to be the Spirit in me, not me, but Christ in me. And I was so excited about that. I just, I just lay there in bed and I, I, I couldn't go back to sleep. But I was just, that's what I was thinking. God, thank you, Lord. Lord. Help me, Lord. I don't do... Listen, when you're trying to minister and serve God by serving others, you're... what you should be saying to yourself is, thank you, Lord. And then you should be saying, help me, Lord. But I'll tell you what you shouldn't be saying. You shouldn't be saying, as you go drop that $100 on somebody's porch this afternoon, you should not be saying, watch me, Lord. Did you see how I did that, Lord. Did you see how I dropped that money on there? You should, and I'll tell you what else you shouldn't do. You shouldn't say, watch me world. Hey everybody, just wanted you to know I just made a gift to this family. Just wanted you to know that. No, you don't do, you don't do good things to impress other people. You don't. I gave up trying to impress people. I was at that first wedding yesterday and I was talking to that couple and I, I said, you know, If I could only give you one verse today, it'd be out of the Sermon on the Mount. I say this a lot, Matthew 6.33. I said, Matthew 6.33 is a great verse. And then I started to quote Matthew 6.33, and I just kept talking. And I found myself halfway through the verse, I said to myself, you're quoting Ephesians chapter 5. You're not even quoting the verse you told them. And so what I'm saying is, I don't try to impress, I mess up a lot when I'm doing anything. So I'm not trying to impress anybody, and I'm certainly not trying to impress God. Let me say this, friend, you can't impress God what are you going to do that makes God say, wow, that was a big deal? I mean, God made the world. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. You think you're going to impress God? You cannot impress somebody who's greater than you are. You know, when I learned that, I mean, I've learned it a lot of times, but one time I learned that several years ago, you know, we've had James Brown, we've been blessed from NFL Today on CBS to have him come speak in our church. Uh, several years and hopefully when this whole pandemic's over he can come back and one year after one of his visits he said to me and my dad he said now listen this fall the Houston Texans have a Thursday night game at NRG Stadium and CBS is covering that game I'll be in Houston and I want the two of you to be my guest at NRG Stadium Wow. I think, man, this is a big deal. And I said, well, what do we do? How does this work? He said, well, everywhere I go, you're just right, you're my shadow. I'm on the sideline. You're on, everywhere I am, you're with me. I'm going to get you in. You're with me the whole time. Man, I just like in, in, in heaven almost just experiencing this. Well, it got to be halftime. And James said, okay, now come with me. I said, well, where are we going? He said, well, we're going to this room back here called the green room and there's some food prepared for us. I said, well, who's us? He said, I told you, you're with me wherever we go, wherever I go. I said, I know, but who else is in that room? He said, well, everybody who's a part of this pro Deion Sanders, Michael Irvin, Marshall Falk. Now, those of you who are football fans, you're going to like this story. The rest of you just play along just for a minute. <laughs> he said, hey, he said, we're all, I said, we're going to be in the room with, with with Primetime, with Deion Sanders. I've watched him since Florida State days, man, and plus the NFL career. Michael Irvin, one of my favorite players of all time. I said, we're going He said, we're gonna be in there. So we go in this green room. James Brown, I was intimidated just to even be with him. I've seen him on TV all my life. These other guys, we're all sitting around eating, and I'm thinking, these guys are Super Bowl champions. Some of them have won multiple championships. They're all in the Hall of Fame. I mean, this is like NFL royalty. I said this to myself, John, don't say something stupid. That's what I said. I said, don't say something. I mean, I said to myself, this would not be the time to say to Dion, Michael Irvin, Marshall Faulk, and James Brown, well, you know, back in the day, I played a little ball myself. <laughs> Now, what am I going to say? NFL royalty, Hall of Fame. What am I going to say? Well, you know, my senior year in high school, I got second team all district. Man, they'd laugh me out of the green room. What did I do? I sat there and listened to their stories and drooled. Drooled coming out of my Wow, I can't believe I'm in the room with these guys. What was I experiencing? I was experiencing what I'm saying to you. You can't impress somebody who's greater than you are. Those guys are in the Hall of Fame. They're not interested in my high school career. No, God made the world. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, rose from the dead. He's not impressed by us going out and doing things, but I'll tell you what he is. He's touched when we do the right thing for the right reason. So it's the motive, it's the heart. It is what is in your heart. Now the last lesson, I'll just mention it quickly. And that is this. The condition of our heart will determine our eternal destinies. If our hearts have been changed, that means we have been saved. That means we are the sheep and that means we live forever with God in heaven. If our hearts have not been changed, see how simple Jesus is. One thing I love about Jesus, he's so simple. If our hearts have not been changed, doesn't matter if we've done some good things, but if our hearts have not been changed, we're the goats. And that would mean that we would be separated from God forever. And so the question to you today is simply this. Are you a sheep? Are you a goat? John, how can I know? Two ways. Number one, look at your actions. Do you see fruit in your life? I'm not saying perfection, but is the general direction of your life one of loving, serving, and trusting God? Or do you look at your life and you see no fruit? It's all about you. It's not got anything to do with helping others or building anybody else up. It's just you, you, you. So you have to look at your actions, but then look at your motives. Why do you do what you do? You know, one thing that we're experiencing here at First Baptist, and I'm sure other churches are experiencing it, but I don't know. If, I mean, my heart's at First Baptist. I mean, this is, this is, our, this is our church. This is, this is my church home, your church home. One of the things I'm seeing here at First Baptist, it's just obvious, is that through this pandemic, God has our attention. People are thinking about God in ways that they were not thinking about God before this. And even though the crowds, now they're starting to get a little bit better, but even though the crowds are still small, we're still maybe a little over a third now of normal, but even though the crowds are smaller, people are being saved. Listen, in the last two weeks alone, now you talk about a praise the Lord, in the last two weeks alone, 44 people have made decisions for Jesus. 44 people in two weeks. 44 people. I did the math on that. That averages out to 22 a week. There is what? 31 week, 14 another, 44. Divided by two, 22 times 52. I have to get a calculator on this because I can't do that math in my head. 22 a week times 52 weeks in a year. Listen to this. At this pace, there will be 1144 people get saved in the next 12 months. Now, you say, you think we're going to keep this pace, John? I hope the pace increases. I don't know if we'll keep it or not, but I'm just, I say that to say when you have 44 people get saved in two weeks, I mean, that is a a staggering number, but project that out to see the total ramification, potential ramification of that. Over 1,100 people would be saved in the next 12 months. God has our attention. And I believe people who have kind of been on the fence and people who've said to themselves, well, you know, I ought to take God seriously and I ought to go to church. Let me tell you something, friend. The whole thing says, I ought to take God seriously. I ought to go. That's, that's a crazy man's thinking. A wise person says, I must take God seriously. If I take my life seriously, if I value my eternity, if I do believe in heaven and if I do believe in hell, how can I yawn through it all? How can I sleep through it all when my eternal destiny is in the balance? And we've seen in recent weeks people saying, I'm off the fence I'm done sleeping through it all. Eternity is too long. Souls are too precious. Life is too short for me to just go through the motions. And we're seeing people who are asking themselves this basic question, am I saved or am I unsaved? Am I a sheep or am I a goat? And so this morning, if you listen to that question and you answer it, many of you say, well, I know I'm saved. I know I'm a sheep. Others of you hear that question and you say, well, I know I'm not saved. I've never, done, I've never been saved. Some of you know that right now. You know in your hearts you're not saved. Others of you, you listen to this and you say, well, you know, John, to be honest with you, I can't tell whether I am or not. I, I know God knows. It's not confusing to him, but it's confusing to me. I can't tell, and I used to live like, I can't tell if I'm saved and the devil's trying to make me doubt it. Or if I'm unsaved and the Holy Spirit has me under conviction. You see, the devil is the author of confusion. With, remember, with God, it's black and white. It's clear. Saved or unsaved, the devil says, well, you don't know which one you are. You know what you can do this morning? You can pray a prayer, receive Jesus Christ into your heart. Trust him to be your Lord and Savior, and you can walk out these doors today not only saved, but you can walk out these doors today knowing beyond the shadow of any doubt that Jesus Christ is living in your heart. Amen? And so without our heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to just see what God does during these next few moments. The Bible says, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. S-A-V-E-D, shall be saved, not might be saved, could be saved. No, we'd never know. And it doesn't say some who call will be saved. How would you know if you were in? All who call will be saved. It's a promise. And it includes everybody who will call. If you want to know today for sure that Jesus Christ is living in your heart, pray this prayer right now. In the privacy of your heart, you pray this prayer to God. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins. And there are many of them forgive my sins make me a Christian make me a sheep and not a goat so that I can spend eternity with you not separated from you Lord I ask you to save me now those some of you have prayed that prayer I know in my heart somebody's prayed that prayer and you've asked him to save you now seal it Say this to Jesus, say, Jesus, I have asked you to save me right now. I trust you to do it. I trust you. I don't look for a sign. I'm not praying for a falling star tonight. No, I don't ask for some special feeling to come over me. No, I'm not basing my salvation on a falling star. And I'm not basing my eternal destiny on some feeling I got at a church. I'm basing my eternal destiny on the Word of God. Tell him that. That says, if I would trust you, you would save me. And Jesus, right now, with everything I have, I trust you. I trust you with all my heart to be my Lord and to be my Savior. God, it's serious business. And I thank you today that I've been born again. You've given me a second chance. Going forward, it's it's like a mulligan in a game of golf. I get a brand new start. I'm all tomorrows and no yesterdays. I thank you that I'm saved.